second reading is a reading from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. The word of the Lord. Thanks be In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A few weeks ago, as we were considering St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we were struck by Paul's eschatological hope. How in the midst of continuous, ongoing, brutal suffering, his body a mess of scars and brokenness, his mind a fragile, shattered mess, somehow he maintains a bright-eyed hope in the resurrection and the world to come. And if you'll recall, I wondered aloud if our lives perhaps are not marked by that same hope that Paul had because we have failed to embrace the weakness and suffering that he so embodied. And this morning, we have our answer. St. Paul is continuing to press into a form of fool for Christ type of argumentation with his Corinthian readers. If you'll remember, the Corinthians have become enamored with spiritual power, ecstatic experiences, and the celebrity charm of super apostles. So much have they had their imaginations hooked by the glitter and gleam of these things that they have begun to question Paul's authority in their lives because he doesn't quite fit with their notion of what success looks like. And here in chapter 12, Paul begins to tell the Corinthians about, you know, a friend. I have a friend asking for a friend. He's talking about himself, his own spiritual experiences where he was caught up to the third heaven. He's using the third person, I know of a man, as a way of subtly jabbing the super apostles who have based their ministry on their own power encounters and mystic spiritual experiences. 
Paul, by contrast to these super apostles, has held his encounter privately since it happened. Even now, telling it as if it happened to a nameless person he knows, and even now describing it as an experience that finds its footing in the mind of God rather than in Paul's own capacity. I mean, consider the things that he says. Was he in the body or out of the body? He doesn't know. Did he climb up to the gates of paradise because of his spiritual insight? No. He says he was caught up. Is his apostleship rooted in this ecstatic experience? Not at all, for the things he heard are inexpressible, things which no one is permitted to tell. This is rhetorically genius. These super apostles will not shut up about their experiences as if it's these experiences that give them authority in the church. And here, St. Paul is essentially saying, my spiritual encounter of being caught up to paradise was so glorious, so beyond human experience, that I cannot talk about it at all. If you want to know the people that have truly had an encounter with the divine, people who were pulled up to heaven out of their own bodies to encounter mysteries unutterable, you'll know them because they will never tell you about these things. No blog, no book deal, no movie franchise. That's how you can tell. In fact, the story that St. Paul tells next cuts completely against the Corinthians' idea of spiritual heroes, and I dare say it cuts against our own ideas as well. Paul tells them that so outlandish was his experience of being caught up in the Spirit that he was given a thorn in his side to keep him from becoming conceited. This is not the ending we want. The stories that we tell, the testimonies, anybody? Testimony time? The testimonies that we gravitate toward are the ones where the powerful pastor undergoes the horrible ordeal, but presses on in prayer and overcomes in a glorious victory. Right? That's the story that we want to hear. There's this great scene in Arrested Development where the dysfunctional Bluth family, who's this very corrupt real estate mogul family in Southern California, they're hoping to shore up their investors by building a new model home. And Michael, who's the only sane one of the family, has tried to be realistic about the building timeline, but his blowhard brother Job is in charge, and he thinks he can get away with building a fake house in order to convince investors to keep their money with the family company. And as they're there at the ribbon cutting, which is itself insane, for this house, they have barely leaned up a shell of a building, and here comes Job cabling down from a helicopter, wireless mic in hand saying, when I said we could build a house in two weeks, my brother wasn't optimistic it could be done. But I wouldn't take wasn't optimistic it could be done for an answer. And of course, they cut the ribbon and the whole house collapses. This is a parable of the folly of much of American Christianity. We want leaders who won't take wasn't optimistic it could be done for an answer, right? We want leaders who go out and claim things for the kingdom and who press on until they achieve their own goals. But is that how Paul describes his ministry, his own prayer life? It's quite the opposite. 
Paul listens in prayer, and he very much takes no for an answer. There's been a lot of speculation over the centuries about what Paul's thorn in the side could have been, some kind of temptation or spiritual warfare or a physical ailment, and it's not an entirely unimportant question, but can easily distract us from the main point, which is that Paul, in submitting to the divine will, models himself on Christ, who himself also takes no for an answer. As he prays in agony in the garden, asking his father if the cup of suffering he is about to drink can be removed. This, of course, is exactly St. Paul's point. These super apostles modeled themselves on the gurus of their day, and all the attention was directed back toward themselves and their own incredible experiences. Paul, on the other hand, obscures himself as he puts on Christ, and he puts Christ at the center of all that he says and all that he does, and he only inserts himself into the process when his own weakness and suffering can serve to corroborate the gospel message with which he has been entrusted. A message, as it turns out, about a God who embraces weakness as an expression of humility and love. And this, too, is exactly the point. Christ could have come as a guru, tossing out ecstatic spiritual experiences left and right, wowing people with his charisma and spiritual power. But he doesn't. He enters the world unheralded. He lives most of his life in anonymity and dies the death of a loser in the midst of his enemies to whom he had given himself in love. This is why St. Paul has no patience for the super apostles because they have failed to embrace Christ's cruciform kingship and the gospel message of his life, death, and resurrection. What about us? What does Christ's power being made perfect in weakness have to do with us? It begins in the Christian rites of initiation. Baptism models this weakness for us. As John Danilu has so elegantly captured for us in his book, The Bible and the Liturgy, the early church practices surrounding baptism all pointed to a deliverance that the catechumen, the one to be baptized, could not accomplish for herself. We retain this in our own baptismal rites today. We anoint the baptized with the oil of the Spirit and mark them with the sign of the cross as an exorcism. It's an embodied way of saying that we have all been held captive by death and the devil, and yet in the cross of Christ, death and the devil have been defeated. And the baptized person is then ritually brought through the waters of judgment and death and brought forth into the resurrection life of Christ. Do you see that if you are a baptized person, your entire life is rooted in this power perfected in weakness? Everything we do is symbolizing death over and over and over again. Utter weakness, right? When Satan finally jumped the shark and made his move to kill God, Christ embraced weakness and what resulted? Christ defeated death and sealed Satan's destruction. Your life was conceived in this power perfected in weakness. And I can't think of a better way to sum up what it means to be a Christian. 
But just as the super apostles modeled themselves on powerful gurus rather than on Christ, we too are tempted to model ourselves on anything other than this shameful display of weakness on the cross. The identities that are up for auction in our culture are manifold. There are so many ways that we try to build an identity for ourselves to avoid the scandal and weakness of Christianity. I just want to highlight two of them that seem particularly tempting in our age. The first is an identity rooted in ideological purity. We are living in an age that is polarizing faster than you can say democratic socialism or right-wing nationalism. In a world that has become unmoored from its own past or from any sort of objective truth, the rigidity of fundamentalism is now infecting every corner of our conversations as a culture. And ideological purity has become our standard in one form or another. Our culture is essentially telling us constantly to not take wasn't optimistic it could be done for an answer, right? You just got to press ahead. It's tempting to demand ideological purity as the key card for entrance, but is that what baptism displays for us? Ideological purity? Did Christ take on human flesh to direct us toward ideological purity? No. No. As the writer of Hebrews points out to us, a body was prepared for Christ that he might embrace weakness and be both priest and victim, that his body would be the reality to which the shadow of the law pointed, that his flesh ripped open on the cross would be the curtain ripped apart that we might enter with him into the Holy of Holies and draw near to God with a sincere heart, not with all of the right answers up here, with a sincere heart. If you're a Christian, you absolutely need to know what you believe. You need to work to understand the teachings of the church on theology, on the moral life. You need to recognize that there are really brilliant people over 2,000 years who have answered all of the questions you might be asking and even more, right? I'm not telling you to not have an intellectualized faith. But you have to remain equally clear that you will not be saved by your ideological purity, by your adherence to any moral code, any code that our culture gives to you or anything else, you are saved by the sacrifice that was presented in the crucified body of Christ. The second identity that we need to be guarded against, if you could call it an identity, is one that is rooted in comfort. Our culture has been so cut off from history and from being rooted in place, our family structures have been decimated, and seemingly nothing need remain stable. You no longer have to stay in the same city, the same church, the same family. You don't even have to stay in the same body. And as a result, we are at fever pitch levels of anxiety as a society. We are essentially one giant toddler trying to self-soothe, and we end up seeking to be as comfortable as possible whether it's financial security or simply distracting ourselves with sex or doling ourselves with sugar or alcohol or spending insane amounts of money on the right kind of car or whatever, it is tempting to feel the coldness of space 
and like a newborn baby demand to be swaddled and have our limbs held close to us again like they were in the womb. But is this what our baptism displays for us? Did you receive the oil of chrism to be comfortable? Did Christ take on human flesh that he might be more comfortable? No. You were baptized into his death. You were brought into his holocaust, his sacrifice. You are not called to comfortableness. You are called to pick up your cross and follow Christ. And there is an unavoidable individuality here. As a friend of mine once told me, in the end, each of us walks alone with Christ. But it is not simply individuality. Primarily, I think we need to ask these questions of ourselves as a parish. How can God's power be made manifest and perfected in our collective weakness? Where have we as a parish been reliant upon our own strength, our own spiritual acumen, on the right-handed grasping power of the world rather than the left-handed upside-down self-giving power of our crucified king? We need one another to know how we have been too self-reliant. We need one another to embrace weakness. So may we learn to pray together and then listen as St. Paul did, and hear Christ say to us each as persons and as a parish, my grace is sufficient for you. Amen.